Hello, listeners, and welcome to another exciting episode of Standing Post. I'm your host, Cody Starkin, and in this month, we bring you a member of the Secret Services Polygraph Program. The program is made up of a broad range of Secret Service Special Agents and Uniformed Division personnel. These polygraph examiners conduct daily operational and quality control activities that consist of, but not limited to, supporting the efforts of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or NICMIC, the Administration of Examinations for Investigative Cases, and pre-employment screening examinations. Now, please welcome to the program, Assistant to the Special Agent in Charge, Bradley Beeler. Bradley Beeler, thank you for coming on the show and joining with me and the listeners uh, to talk about what you do for the Secret Service. I greatly appreciate it. If um, if you don't mind, as with every great show uh, we do here with Standing Posts, uh, do you mind introducing yourself to the listeners? Yeah, Cody. First off, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to come in and chat with you here today. My name is Brad Beeler, and I've been with the Secret Service for the last 22 years. Currently, I'm assigned as our liaison at the Federal Polygraph School at Fort Jackson. And in that role, I teach interview and elicitation techniques to the federal agencies that utilize that facility. In the military, I was an adjutant general. My primary education was actually at Fort Jackson to do the adjutant general course there. Yeah, it is. A, it's a huge base down here. I think it's the Army's largest uh, training facility for, for basic training. We actually use their recruits for role players at the polygraph school. So nice place. Uh, it's just a little hot this time of the year. Very stuffy. <laughs> Well, um, again, I just want to say thank you for uh, joining us on the show here to talk about uh, the polygraph program. But, I, you know, I want to know more about you, who you are, uh, what you do, kind of, you know, develop this kind of mental picture for people. So do you mind um, maybe discussing what your hobbies were, uh, things that you did uh, or do in your spare time? Yeah, I was born and raised in a small town in Missouri. So uh, that afforded a lot of opportunities to to hunt and fish. Uh, Definitely enjoy doing that. So my son and I get back to Missouri as as often as we can to do some turkey hunting and deer hunting. My son and daughter are both very active uh, swimmers, and my son's a wrestler. And so we kind of chase them around as much as we can to go to their tournaments and their meets. And then first, the last 10 years or so, I've really liked uh, doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So it's a really good stress reliever for me. What did you do prior to uh, applying to the, to the agency? Sure. I went to undergraduate and graduate school in the St. Louis area, and I played soccer in college. And I was really fortunate we had a uh, – a solid criminology department there that really focused on internships. And um, as part of that, I, I got an internship at the Secret Service, and it really opened my eyes as far as what the agency has to offer. Do you mind kind of talking about your experiences about that? Yeah, absolutely, Cody. So the graduate program I was in was really pushed internships as a way to kind of get out into the field and see, you know, some potential future opportunities. And I was able to spend a semester in the St. Louis field office, and it was it was great for me to see the agents in the office in a very, very small uh, piece of their, their day-to-day work. And as a young snot-nosed kid, you know, I got to see the Hollywood aspect of the Secret Service, and, you know, it was appealing. I got to go out to the range and shoot, I think that was 96 or 97, I think 96, and it was great to, I think I got to go out to the range and shoot the Uzi. I think we were still using the Uzi submachine gun at the time, and uh, they had a presidential advance, so I got to tag along and even got to meet President Clinton on the tarmac. So as a young kid, you know, you got to see that aspect of it, and it, and it was really blowing you away. But, you know, then the other aspect of it is I got to see the agents all kind of huddle around the old-school teletype machine at 4.30 on a Friday trying to see if they got weekend orders to travel to New York or 
or some other place and, and talk about standing post in the stairwell. And, you know, you see the duty agent getting called out at, at all hours of the night to local police departments. So it really got to see both sides, the realistic version, the Hollywood version. And, and most importantly, I, I got the, the biggest takeaway was I got to see the camaraderie with the agents and staff and to see how the agents really leaned on one, one another. And, uh, you know, definitely a, a quality, quality of the people that worked for the organization that, is why I decided that, you know, several years later, I definitely want to apply to this organization. In your position, your current position, it takes a little bit of time to be trained as a, a polygrapher. What did you do prior to uh, joining the polygraph program? I appreciate you asking, Cody. Um, so I was hired out of the St. Louis office and assigned to Chicago in uh, 1999. And one of the good things about a large office like Chicago is you have a lot of different opportunities to go to different squads and have other opportunities. So I started in the counterfeit squad, which allowed me to see a lot of in-custody responses and, and, and partake in a lot of different interviews. After three years or so, I went to our organized crime task force for a couple of years. And during that time period, I got to see how a lot of the polygraph examiners uh, were able to eliminate suspects, focus investigations, and kind of uh, obtain admissions with such ease. So at that point, I knew I, I really wanted to go to polygraph school. So uh, I became an examiner in Chicago for four years. You know, then I went to the Bush 41 detail, the elder Bush, and he would spend time between Houston and Kenny Bunkport, Maine, and really good opportunity for me. I was able to go to rescue swimmer school and boat school. So it allowed us to be on the water a lot. Um, and at the time, the former president was very active. So uh, after I finished my stint there, I, I transferred to the St. Louis field office and re-entered the polygraph program. And St. Louis much like Chicago, it's a really good place to be an examiner because it affords you a lot of opportunities to assist the local police departments with their criminal cases. They just don't have a lot of polygraph resources, so it's a way to kind of leverage a, you know, our polygraph uh, examiners to give back to them for what they do for us. And after about five years out there, position where I'm in right now opened up. And being from a, a family of teachers, I jumped at the opportunity to kind of head down here and talk about, you know, some lessons learned, you know, the successes and the mistakes that I've, that I've seen and hopefully be able to pass those on. We'll definitely talk about that a little bit here uh, soon. You know, it's interesting. I like the, to be in the position that you're at. Um, what's that kicker? What's that thing that made you want to enter into the program? You know, I was always fascinated by communication growing up since I was in middle school, my best friend up to this day is, uh, is deaf and trying to learn about communication and learning sign language and how to be really, how to enunciate my words so he could read my lips and um, understand that it's not so much what you say, but how you say it to get across to people. And then, uh, when I was in graduate school, I got to go down to the city jail and I would do as part of a research project and we would interview arrestees on their, their drug use habits and gang affiliation. And, uh, it really, kind of helped me kind of find my way as far as what ways can you present yourself to put yourself out there that even when people are in their worst situation or experiencing their worst circumstances in their life, that they would open up to you uh, and be able to talk with you, even if you didn't share a lot of their, if you didn't have a lot of shared personal experiences with those individuals. So um, prior to coming on the job, I've just always really fascinated with communication. So this just kind of dovetailed into that when, when Polygraph presented itself. Well, I believe, you know, we have the perfect candidate on the show here to talk about the polygraph program. But I've, I've learned in the past that, you know, we kind of have a unique history um, with the polygraph program. Do you mind like maybe setting the stage of um, why the program was created for the Secret Service? We are truly imperfect creatures, Cody. Um, you know, since the beginning of time, we're talking cave, caveman days. 
uh, people have chosen to be deceptive in order to get something that maybe they're not entitled to or attempt to cover up something that they where they made a mistake. So and the other aspect of that is humans are also very bad at determining truth and deception. So in the early 1900s, you know, researchers got together and they started looking at blood volume through a cardio cuff. They started looking at internal body movements through the pneumograph tubes. But it wasn't until the late 1930s that an individual, uh, you know, added the electrodermal activity channel to the equation. And that's how polygraph is in its current form. And kind of a, an interesting tidbit about Secret Service history, we were the first, we had the first four federal polygraph examiners in the world in 1939. And an agent by the name of Frank Seckler spearheaded those efforts. We actually kind of uh, give him an homage to, to what he's done by, by naming our annual polygraph award after him. You know, the issue in that era was, if we go back to the 1930s, we didn't have DNA. We didn't have uh, fingerprints were in their infancy. We didn't have cell phone records, things that we rely on today. So polygraph was it. And what we would do is we would use polygraph as a way to, to try to identify where the, the counterfeit was being made. Because if somebody was arrested, we didn't know if they were the printer, if they were the supplier, if they were the ones engraving the plates. So by polygraphing these individuals, we could hopefully suppress a plant. And in those days, if you could suppress a polygraph plant, you could really stop counterfeit activity in that, in those areas. So that's why we, we first started polygraph. And also, we were so successful at that that during World War II, our examiners switched their focus to kind of support the war effort. And we actually did counterintelligence exams to help uh, uncover spies and saboteurs that were trying to infiltrate the federal government from the Axis powers that we were fighting against. That individual I talked about, Frank Segler, he really is kind of a, a mystery. He kind of hasn't got the credit for what he's done uh, for this agency. Um, if you go back in the 1950s, he was kind of a celebrity after he retired. He'd write newspaper articles talking about his exploits. And if you don't mind me just sharing one case real quick. Of course. In 1939, right after uh, him and his fellow three agents graduated polygraph school, uh, it's kind of this case. It's really fascinating when you read up on it. It's almost like the French connection where you've got a bunch of Secret Service agents rushing around midtown Manhattan and uh, they're on streetcars and they're going down alleys. They're surveilling this counterfeit suspect. And this individual gets loses them. He does a good job of losing the agents. And he goes into this six-story tenement building. So they set up surveillance around the facility. And when he comes out, uh, they had enough probable cause to arrest him. And they shook him down and he had a bunch of counterfeit money on him. He wasn't cooperative, but he agreed to sit down for one of these newfangled polygraph tests. And uh, Seckler asked him, you know, was it in floor one? floor two, all the way up to floor six. And he asked him, was it in room A, room B, all the way right down, you know, to room F, whatever it was. And Seckler was actually able, without this guy even answering, just his, his physiology basically betrayed him. And as a result, they went to that room, knocked in the door, and uh, there was the counterfeit uh, operation right there. They were printing the money right there, and uh, they took him down. So 1939, it was a really a fascinating case as far as polygraph history goes. No, that's amazing. I just I'm always fascinated by the the not the individual stories, but just like the random history tidbits that that I don't think the public knows about. So thank you for bringing that to light for everybody. Sure. So the program itself, you know, you've kind of answered it with your previous answers, but you know, specifically, I want to reapproach and ask why does the Secret Service use the polygraph program? Because I know we use it for uh, different things throughout the agency, but do you mind kind of discussing you know what we use it for? Absolutely, Cody. So in the early 1980s, we started vetting our applicants by using polygraph. And since that time, applicant screening is without a doubt our primary mission. So, you know, due to the fact that our uniform division officers, as well as our agents, 
are not just within arm's reach of our protectees, but they're also within earshot of the privileged information that takes place when foreign leaders come to this country in the Situation Room with the president and as well as our other uh, protectees. So we need our gun carriers to have that top secret SCI clearance, and, and that's where polygraph comes in. So as is the case with most agencies, the overwhelming majority of derogatory information is derived um, as a result of polygraph during the clearance process. You know, a lot of this information wouldn't come up by talking to a neighbor, talking to the parent, uh, talking to someone's wife or, or coworkers, um, because a lot of times people do have things in their past that they have never disclosed to anybody. So we are a, a firm believer that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So if, Cody, you were a 30-year applicant applying to be a uniform division officer or an agent with this organization, we would want to go back and look at the last 15 years on how you lived your life, morally, ethically. And hopefully, and, and what the research shows is that we would be able to extrapolate from that how you were going to be as an agent or a uniform division officer for the next 25 years of your career. So, And that's, that's where the vast majority of our examinations come from. And within this last fiscal year, due to COVID, it has really been a whirlwind for our frontline examiners and quality control. Uh, record number of applicant examinations well as traveling throughout the country and, and wearing PPE during a lot of uh, lengthy interview sessions. So, you know, it's, it's definitely been a, a very difficult year for the entire cadre of, uh, of uh, examiners that we have. And it just doesn't stop there, correct? Because I know uh, we had uh, talked to Special Agent Joan Hobeck. You know, she was on the show, I believe, may have been the second or third episode of Standing Post, and she had talked about the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And I know the polygraph program plays a big part in that. Can you kind of expound on that for the listeners? Absolutely. We have a, a great relationship that you got from from Ms. Hoback about with our relationship with NECMEC. We always have representatives there. And I feel it's one of the great strengths that this agency has is since 1994, when Congress passed the Violent Crime Act, we were congressionally mandated to provide forensic support uh, to NECMEC. And, you know, over the years, since 94, I believe, we have almost 9,000 cases that we've conducted, and that runs the gamut of crimes against children from traumatic brain injuries on children, um, child sexual assault, child pornography. And, you know, I think at last check, we almost have right at 5,000 admissions and confessions on those cases. So um, I think if you really polled the hundreds of examiners over that time period that run those cases, they would tell you that that is something that they are the most proud of in their time with this organization, because in these cases, these victims are true victims. They don't get to choose the life circumstance that they're born into or the, you know, the situations that they're presented with. And, and these things happen in the dark of night. And a lot of times they are very afraid to make disclosures. So we must be the, the sheepdog for them to provide that um, justice that they deserve. And what about uh, criminal examinations? Can you talk to, you know, talk to us about what the, you know, what the polygraph program can do in criminal cases? We will support our field offices on secret service specific, specific cases, so counterfeit, financial crimes, network intrusion. Um, if Protective Intelligence Division would like us to provide examinations on individuals as far as a risk assessment, assessment we will definitely do that. But as you mentioned with our NECMEC mission, a lot of times we will make inroads with local police departments, and they will ask us, hey, can you assist with this homicide, with this robbery, cold case homicide, whatever the case may be? And you know, we run quite a few of these examinations, and it's, it's a really way, once again, to give back to the local law enforcement community. And just off the top of my head, you know, in the last five or six months, our examiners have done a great job of uh, 
basically solving two cold case homicides. We also had a young juvenile, 11-year-old, that was uh, unfortunately a victim in a, in a gang shooting, um, you know, a stray bullet. And uh, we were able to utilize polygraph to bring the, the individual responsible to justice. So these are, these are great cases in which, once again, we can try to give back for everything that local law enforcement does for us. And Another thing that we do that a lot of people don't know, Cody, is, is we run our Spanish-speaking examiners will assist in the selection of the task force members for our South American uh, counterfeit suppression groups. This takes place in Colombia, Peru, and soon-to-be Ecuador, where our Spanish-speaking examiners will go on site in South America, and they will vet these individuals to make sure that they're not narcos or they're not working for another criminal enterprise. And without getting into specifics, they've you know, over the last 20 years, done an amazing job at being able to circumvent individuals that tried to get on to these task forces that had uh, significant issues in their past. That's awesome. Uh, I, I didn't realize that. And that's that's incredible. I want to kind of switch uh, the conversation over to uh, the people that are behind the polygraph machine. Uh, we discussed a little bit why you chose. But, you know, coming from your years of experience, why should someone choose the polygraph program, you know, as a part of their Secret Service career? I mean, Cody, you've interviewed a lot of different people that have specialty assignments within the Secret Service. I know you've talked to emergency response team, counter sniper, canine, our electric crimes division. These are all people that have a very, very high skill set that's extremely specialized, truly world-class that assists us in doing our protective mission. Sometimes, though, these skills that are obtained in these specialty assignments are very, very specific to the job. They may not follow you outside the, the, the 40 hours that you work or uh, into retirement or into additional assignments. The one thing that I think polygraph brings to the table is that you are obtaining an uh, amazing set of, of communication skills that you will utilize throughout not just your time in polygraph, but you know throughout your career. Because when you're in the polygraph program, you're going to literally do thousands of investigative interviews. And these are going to be on applicants. These are going to be in criminals. They're going to last several hours apiece. So the cumulative total of that is it's pretty amazing. And the individuals you're going to be talking to will have hurt children, maybe committed homicides or intend to cause harm to our protectees. So um, as a result of that repetition, we, be, we become very good at listening, observing, and confidently commuting, uh, uh, communicating our message, whatever that may be. It, it kind of reminds me, Cody, of, of the first homicide investigation that I was able to take part at. And I had just graduated polygraph school and, and been minted out of my internship. And unfortunately, uh, my partner, a uh, great polygraph examiner. He's now retired by the name of Brian Leary. He, had, he wasn't there. He was out on another assignment. And so I had to go do it myself. And, and I talked to the individual. I was nervous. I was anxious. I just didn't have that skill set to confidently communicate. And the individual failed the test, but I know he could see right through me because I just didn't have that communication skill set yet. But Learning those lessons and, and being put in that crucible over time of running multiple examinations, it helps any examiner not do that again. So um, I also think that having that skill set will help, especially on our pre-detail agents, will help them in their future endeavors on the protective details in that them, while they're conducting foreign advances, working with foreign law enforcement, negotiating with foreign countries and their security liaisons, working with staff, um, it's going to make them more confident and be able to be more effective at their job. And from your years of experience and, you know, being in the position that you're in now to to train the new generation, what makes a good examiner uh, for the program? I think when we bring personnel in and send them to polygraph school, the better, obviously, communication skills that they have is going to allow for a smaller learning curve. We can 
talk about some ways in which we try to improve that. But if, if they come in with communication skills, that's very helpful. Um, also, them being creative and non-judgmental and being able to exhibit empathy is extremely important. Um, we do have a lot of students that don't have that sales track record or, you know, they don't have negotiating experience or communication, uh, high level of communication uh, experience. They may be introverted, but by putting in those reps, by sending them to follow-on schools, we are really able to cultivate that skill set. Um, you know, having people that are creative helps because a lot of times, you know, they're thrown curveballs during the process, you know, especially in criminal examinations. But I think empathy is the key trait. You know, the polygraph for some people is a significant life event. An applicant may come in and they may not have ever told anybody something that is ha- that had happened in their past. And we may be the first person that they're trying to decide, do they want to open up about this thing? So being open, being comfortable, being non-judgmental and empathetic is extremely important to allow somebody to get things off their chest that will allow them to be successful in the polygraph arena. Um, so I, I would say that's, that's big. You know, creativity, sometimes we can help foster by doing certain techniques. Sometimes with my students, I like to give them Millie Vanilli lyrics or strange words or Britney Spears lyrics that they have to incorporate <laughs> into their mock, uh, their mock interrogations. And it, we can do that in that type of setting, but it really helps them get confident that, that they can do this. All right. So I think that's very important. So creativity, empathy, and, and being non-judgmental are, are, are key. And how does the, the, the Secret Service go about selecting the individuals um, to serve in the polygraph program? And is there, uh, I guess you've already talked about it before, but with the specific school, can you talk about what that pipeline looks like from selection to the education portion? Try to put out biannual emails that look for individuals that are interested in the polygraph program. So what we do is those individuals, if they've got, uh, I think right now we're looking at two more than two years, so two to three years on, because that is really important for them to have just good basic uh, institutional knowledge about the Secret Service, time to cut their teeth and obtain those communication skills as well. But if they have that amount of time on, they will submit a letter through their supervision chain. We will look at it. We will then determine we'll have some phone interviews with them. We will then, uh, if they get selected, uh, we have to do a national security polygraph, which is uh, not a full scope polygraph, but we just want to make sure there are no national security concerns. Um, and if they do get selected and we put them through to the uh, through the process, that's when they start the 13-week polygraph academy at the National Center of Credibility Assessment uh, here in Columbia, South Carolina. What is the, you know, the kind of the makeup of the individuals who join the program? Yeah, I would say traditionally, so if we go back 15, 20 years, we were very heavy on free detail agents. I think now we're much more diverse in that we have a very good makeup of not just agents, but uniform division sergeant technicians, retired annuitants, and almost a 50-50 mix of pre-detail uh, phase one agents and also post detail, post protective detail, phase three agents. So, and it runs the gamut from people that had prior law enforcement, prior military, individuals that had neither, introverts, extroverts. So, having that diverse experience and not only agent but uniform division, we almost have a, a Rolodex of experience that we can draw on when we have certain cases that w- we need to, to look at an examinee's background and we can reach out to agents to get a little bit of uh, help in trying to understand what makes these individuals tick, almost like a good sounding board for, for how the examiner should conduct that examination. But also having that diversity helps pair up our 
students once they graduate polygraph school because we can find trainers within the polygraph program that have that diverse skill set that can play to a mentor's or a trainee's strength and also help them with their weaknesses. So uh, it's really, really solid to have the diversity that we have within the program. And, you know, if somebody's, um, let's say they're right now at the Riley Training Center finishing up their training, um, either as a special agent or uniform division officer, and they kind of want to fast track to the program, is there a minimum amount of time? Is there something that they need? Are there a couple of blocks they need to check prior to putting in their bid for the position? Yeah, typically two to three years is, is what we're looking for, you know, with, with, with solid, you know, performance reviews and those types of things. So, you know, if an individual is out there and they're interested and they're at training, you know, put the time in, learn the job, but also, you know, get out there and listen to sales podcasts, get sales books. There's a lot of books out there that can help your interview and interrogation skills. But, and those are things you can do off the clock that'll, once again, shorten that learning curve once you do get in a polygraph program. We're going to shift the uh, conversation one more time. I want to kind of get into the the process itself, getting the individual in the chair, kind of walking through that process a little bit. Obviously not uh, telling all the trade secrets, but maybe just discuss some of the things that um, we can tell the listeners about the process if they've never been, uh, if they've never taken one. Because uh, personally, I can actually say that I have. the. I applied to the Florida State Troopers in my early 20s. And a, a deployment kind of stopped that process. But I got all the way up to the point where uh, I was to do a polygraph. So they had me write uh, everything down at that point uh, in an affidavit, anything that I wanted to provide to the examiner. And then they sat me down you know, for a control session and then the actual session itself. So what does that look like to somebody that's entering into the room to do a polygraph? No, it's, I think there's a lot of similarities with what you went through. I mean, there are some myths out there about polygraph. You know, hey, we bring people in, we immediately attach the components, we do things to try to stress them out, and then we jump into the examination. What people need to understand is we know that this is a significant life event, and you were probably anxious when you took your polygraph, correct, Cody? Oh, yeah, absolutely, because I just okay. it was with law enforcement, so you never know what's going to yeah. happen in that process. Sure. So we understand that. And we're going to take that into account. We're going to have you use the restroom. We're going to have you get a drink. We are going to allow you to decompress and kind of reach that uh, physiological equilibrium that we need. And then we're going to run a practice or some people call it an acquaintance test before the actual examination where we're going to familiarize you with the process. We're going to calibrate the instrument to where your physiology is on that day. So if Cody, on that day that you took that polygraph down in Florida, let's say the day before your heart rate was 60, but now you are in that interview room and your heart rate is 100. We're going to take that into account. And, you know, with your military background, you'll understand this concept. A practice test for us is almost like taking that, that M16 or that M4 that you had uh, in basic training, and it's us attaching the optic to it. And the first time you, you, you utilize that weapon system, that bore and that optic are not going to be lined up. You're not going to hit the bullseye. So we, you need to make certain windage and elevation adjustments to the hit the bullseye. We're kind of doing the same thing with the polygraph is we're taking that into account that your physiology is at an elevated state. So that's going to be our starting point. It, it's kind of like when you go to the dentist, you're going to be a little bit nervous. So we understand that. We're going to give you breaks. We're going to explain the process to you. Knowledge is power. Um, we're going to allow you to review all the questions prior to the examination. And what people need to understand out there is all polygraph is is a verification of questions that you've been previously asked. So there's no surprise questions out there. You will have, if you're an applicant, 
you will been have been asked every question in earlier on in the application process that you're going to be asked during the actual polygraph. So if you're just open and honest in your application and your previous interviews, it is going to be an easy day during the polygraph. And people need to know the Secret Service, we look at the whole person. So as long as people, you know, uh, sunshine is the ultimate disinfectant. So, you know, if they can put everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly on those application forms, it makes everybody's job a lot easier uh, on the polygraph. And do you have, um, you know, during the process, is there wiggle room for the questioning? I mean, is there something on there that is your favorite question that you like to ask uh, during the interview? You know, yeah. So as far as the, the applicant tests go, um, there's, it is very, very standardized. And we have a very restrictive quality control segment that makes sure every applicant is treated ethically, fairly, and that if they get an exam in San Francisco, it's going to be the same as an exam in New York. Now, when it comes to criminal examinations, we do audible quite a bit. And as far as a specific question, I think my, the best way to answer this is I would focus on a specific approach. We need to understand how important first impressions are in that, one, we need to utilize and, and make utilize that and make a very good first impression because it shows competence and it instills confidence in the other person that I'm in good hands. But we also need to be very, very careful about having someone make an impression upon us because we might be quick and we are quick as humans to put the proverbial horns or halos on someone. Um, and if they make a bad first impression, we put the horns on them. If they make a great first impression, we put that halo. And the problem with doing that, Cody, is uh, we view everything through that prism of that first impression. So if we're too quick to judge, it causes us to, to have a bad read potentially on them. So we try to hold off of that, that first impressions and not assign that trend pro status, um, and that tends to help us. A gut instinct is very good for our agents when they're doing a search warrant or our uniform division officers uh, when something happens at the White House or one of our protected sites. But it's it's not necessarily good in first impressions because – us being able to detect truth and deception is not great, and we don't want to fall for that confirmation bias. So that would be an approach. I think as far as favorite question I like to ask in a criminal interview would be something like this, Cody. Let's say you are suspected of passing counterfeit currency, and I would like to ask you, hey, Cody, uh, can you come up with three reasons why you think someone would pass counterfeit currency? So if I just asked you that question, Cody, now, what do you think three good reasons would be why someone would pass counterfeit money? Uh, I guess if I had to come up with three uh, different reasons why you would pass uh, counterfeit notes, I would probably say you knew you had it, so you were going to attempt to obtain a good or service from an individual with a counterfeit note. You didn't realize you passed it, so I mean the person didn't realize they had it and they accidentally passed it. And the third one, I don't know. I don't know what would be another reason for someone to have counterfeit. Yeah, I would, I would definitely view those reasons as very honest reasons. I mean, that's something an honest person would say that it might not be culpable in the incident. A lot of times, though, if, whether it be a counterfeit case, a child sexual assault case, if I ask that question to them and I pose them with those three reasons, a lot of times what people will do is they will subconsciously provide the reasons for why they did it. So like in this case, if I was to ask, and let's say you were bad on this uh, incident, and I said, you know, Cody, give me three reasons. You might say, I don't know, to help people put food on the table, maybe to buy their kids something nice for Christmas. You know, maybe they just were drinking and weren't thinking straight. 
those are three very deceptive reasons. And they also kind of paint a portrait of how I will go on and approach that person if they did have problem problems on the polygraph, because they're, they're kind of showing us behind the scenes, their motivations, you know, their rationalizations for why they committed the crime in question. So having and being armed with that information ahead of time is going to be allow me to connect with them uh, much more effectively. Can you tell specifically if somebody could be deliberately lying to you or trying to uh, bend the truth uh, when talking to you? Can you see any common signs? Yeah, Cody, I, I, I really wish there were, um, you know, uh, but anybody that tells you they can do that is lying to you. Um, it is very, very difficult to just look at someone and see if they're being deceptive with you. Um, it's, uh, you know, eye contact, you know, people talk about that as far as, uh, you know, he looked up to the left, he looked down to the right, uh, he must be deceptive. Now with my son, that works. My son is one of the unicorns out there where <laughs> if he, uh, if I ask him a question and, and he's bending the truth a little bit, he's going to look up to the right and, and create something uh, versus when he's recalling, he looks up to the left. But that's, uh, that's very rare. I think the, the technique that we like to use, Cody, is and it's, it's very simple. You need to ask yourself. So when you ask somebody a question and you phrase it in a way in, it, when, in which it can be answered yes or no, then the person should answer yes or no, and they should do so in a timely fashion. When they don't do that, it's a problem. And it's a big red flag because people don't want to lie. It, it makes us uncomfortable. We don't want to get caught in that lie. So it causes uh, fight or flight. And as a result, it causes people to not answer a question yes or no. They may equivocate by saying probably, usually, maybe. You know, they, they don't take ownership of the question. They might omit a part of that answer, or they may have, uh, you know, answer latency or delay what we cause it. They may repeat the question, or they may just have a longer period of time before they start answering because they're trying to buy time. So in a real-world example, you know, I hate to keep uh, talking about my son here because he's a good kid. He doesn't uh, lie much, but let's say we uh, – He's 16, so let's just say we kind of boil this down to a homework issue. Um, I, I may ask him, hey, son, did you, did you finish your homework? He might equivocate by saying, for the most part. Well, it's a yes or no question, right? Like, so when he says, for the most part, that means, you know, he hasn't got it all done. He might omit by saying, yeah, I finished my math and science. Uh, he omits the part about his English assignment, the two. Or he, he may pause and, and try to buy himself more time. So I ask him, hey, son, did you get your homework done? And he says, did I get my homework done? He should be able to answer that yes or no. And, and by repeating the question, a lot of times what he's doing is he's trying to buy himself some time to determine you know, how he wants to answer that. But um, really no Pinocchio effect out there. I mean, um, you know, if, if you want me to discuss this a little bit further, I, I, I do have kind of something that ties in with the Secret Service a little bit. If you, if you, if you want me to talk about that, Cody, as far as uh, truth and deception and our ability to detect deception. Of course. Absolutely. That's why we have you on the show. I'd be, be happy to hear it. Yeah. So back in the, the late 80s, uh, Dr. Paul Ekman, he's real famous and he consulted with the show Lie to Me. And he's a very famous uh, doctor that looked at, uh, you know, people's eye movements and body language and trying to determine, you know, truth, deception, uh, emotions, those types of things. He did this really big study that tried to determine if people in law enforcement, the judicial system and uh, you know, college students, professors, could they determine truth and, and fiction? They would watch this video and one person was lying, one person was telling the truth. And, and, and what they found out is basically 55% of the time was the average as far as the group seeing a video, 
trying to determine if that person was being truthful. So we are really, really bad at this. But the interesting part and in how it ties into the Secret Service was that Ekman found that Secret Service agents were 15 to 20 percent better than the average as far as trying to determine truth and fiction. And, you know, it, it, some of the agents were in the upper 80s. Uh, as far as being able to determine truth and deception. I always wondered, like, you know, and this was way back when, when I was in college, like, why was the Secret Service so good at this? Why do you think that was? Why why were they the best at, um, you know, detecting deception? Well, in my opinion, Cody, I think, you know, our agents and uniformed division officers deal with an inordinate amount of situations in which truth and deception is in doubt. A young agent goes out on polygraph responses while they're a duty agent. They conduct you know, interviews with suspects in financial crimes activities. They uh, talk to individuals that are making threats. Our uniformed division officers deal with gate callers and potentially people that are undergoing a mental health crisis. So our uh, employees, our gun carriers, across the board, as far as law enforcement go, we we do so many interviews that I think we, we see that. We see good people. We see bad people. And by having that skill set in our toolbox, it's extremely helpful having all that experience. But also, day to day, our protection requires a ton of observation. I mean, we watch people when you're standing post, when you're doing an advance, when you're at the White House. We watch people on a daily basis. And since the majority of communication, some people say 60 to 80 percent of communication is done nonverbally, that I think that gives us a big advantage. But I truly think that, you know, lastly, our societal is so tribal that, you know, with politics and societal issues that humans tend to kind of find their own way. They tend to stay in their own echo chamber, look for points of view that validate their opinion. But with the Secret Service, we can't do that. I mean, our our agents and uniform division officers protect uh, Republicans, Democrats, independents, foreign heads of state. And we deal with staff, constituents, and voters for all those people as well. We see so many different perspectives. And traveling the, the 50 states and all the overseas travel that we do, we see different cultures and different walks of life. In our criminal exams, we see gang members, people addicted to drugs. And having that skill set and those experiences, I, I think, arms us with that worldly, unjudgmental view that's, that's very unique to our organization is a huge strength when we're interacting with people. Assistant to the special agent in charge, Bradley Beeler, I thank you very much for being on the show. I would like to let you close it out with the listeners. Is there anything you would like to uh, tell them before we uh, end the episode? Yeah, definitely. I appreciate, first off, Cody, you having me. Um, you know, I would say to the applicants out there, I just remind them that polygraph is just a verification of the information that you gave us early on in the application process and in your interviews that you've done. And that this organization truly looks at the whole person concept. So bring those things up early on in the process. Be honest on your forms. And if you do it, you're going to do very, very well. Now, also, don't go down the rabbit hole of looking up and researching polygraphs. There's a lot of uh, misinformation and disinformation out there. Um, come in, be 100% honest, get a good night's sleep, get some breakfast in the morning. And all we're going to do during our session is sit down and have a, a private conversation about your life. For more information about the Secret Service or how to join, please go to www.secretservice.gov. And until next time, listeners, stay vigilant.